Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I live in the United States with my beautiful senior cat, Senor Antonio Botones. I'm passionate about animals and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdelin.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hey everybody, I am coming to you from deep in the woods in someplace Oregon on this Father's Day. So happy Father's Day. And this week's episode features one of the great dads that co-parents with mom, the Nazca Booby. Another group of great dads out there are albatrosses. Now, everyone congratulates and celebrates wisdom, the lazen albatross, for having yet another chick at age 70. And don't get me wrong, that is terrific. And it is an accomplishment. But there is no way that she could be successful without a fully invested co-parent. She lives on Midway Atoll in the Hawaiian archipelago with her, well, second husband. The first one died in a typhoon some time back. She's been with her current partner, Akia Kamai, since about 2012. Her partner, Akia Kamai, on this last egg and all the eggs, did all the heavy sitting as Wisdom took off for the sea to forage. Lazen albatrosses are also known for forming same sex partnerships. And this is because there's sometimes not enough males to go around, and you simply cannot raise a family, in this case, one chick at a time, without two parents. About 30% of parents are two moms. But this week it's about dads. So back to dads. Albatrosses and boobies aren't the only devoted dads out there. There are some that do most of the parenting, while moms are either completely absentee or just simply leave everything to pops. Let's look at some species where mom takes off. Fish. That's most fish. And that's because females can lay the eggs and then scoot. In pumpkin seed sunfish, males are the only parent. They have a nest and they take care of their future little fry. It's tough work. They lose weight because they have to fan the eggs, helping to move oxygen around. So sometimes they do have to nibble on an egg or two to keep it going. Frogs also have outstanding dads. The green poison dart frog is a committed father. They attend to the eggs, find a good spot for their soon-to-be tadpoles, and then finally carry their little sons and daughters to those water pools. I don't know where we humans got this crazy idea that dads aren't needed. They're supposed to be fully participating, like 50-50, y'all, in raising the kids. It is some cultural baloney. More on that at the end of the show. For now, let's talk about boobies. A lot of people might be familiar with the blue-footed booby, but this week I'm talking to Dr. Dave Anderson, professor at Wake Forest University, about the way of the Nazca booby. Hey everyone, I want to welcome Dr. Dave Anderson to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jennifer. It's it's wonderful, you know, to have you because you and your team uh, that you work with uh, are, are working on a group of species that I have long been fascinated with. You've done work on Nazca boobies and also on albatrosses. And so I'm really excited to share with listeners, not just the things that you have and continue to discover, but also talk about what the future holds for um, these important groups of birds. Before we get started, I always like for people to hear about my guests and how they came to do what they do um, and why. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and how you got there? Well, uh, my field is ecology and evolution, especially how what's called life histories of birds evolve. Your life history is um, a series of major events in your life, like uh, when you become adult, how many times do you breed? Uh, How long will you live? Uh, How many mates will you have? 
How much effort do you put into each offspring that you try to raise? These are things that we try to understand how natural selection has has shaped their evolution. And I've been doing that for a long, long time. Um, I've been at Wake Forest now for 30 years. And for about eight or nine years before that, I was still doing the same thing. I started this project when I was uh, really just out of my undergraduate and I uh, haven't finished it yet. That's kind of a personality trait of mine that uh, I tend to start something and then never want to let go of it. There always seems to be one more thing that needs to be done. Um, home improvement projects are, are the same way. <laughs> that is true. And, and well, and you know, this area of life history, it's so fascinating. And I think that a lot of people can relate, right? We go, we have a life history as humans. We, we go through stages, we put in certain amount of effort into different elements of our lives. And, you know, that ties to this show because the show's about connection and how we can connect better with nature. And by relating with it, we might be able to connect better and strengthen our appreciation for the lives of other species. Um, and I'm wondering, do you have a way outside of your research um, questions that's meaningful to you about how to experience a connection with nature? I'm going to question the premise um, of what you're asking. I, I don't feel like I need to do something to be connected with nature. I, I kind of feel like uh, my habitat is out there and I leave the habitat sometimes to come indoors and a lot of times to go into the office. Uh, I feel like it's just a part of life in general to be gardening, um, studying birds, uh, going backpacking. Yeah, and I understand that uh, for many people, they have a, a more of a varied view of, of their context. And I guess I don't. I kind of feel like I'm in in the habitat. And sometimes I come indoors and I'm not so much in that habitat. Have you always felt that way? Uh, yeah. Ever since I was, I was a little kid. Yep. I love that. And I think you're right. And I think that, you know, where I'm coming from is I observe that many people believe that there is no connection between themselves and nature out there. And sometimes through actively doing things or hearing about what, how other people perceive their, their interaction, it might, it might create a little bit of a click, uh, because I think that not failing to recognize how we are part of it is part of the problem that we have maybe as a species. Um, so, so you do your work on seabirds and, I, I think before we talk about some specific species, what makes a seabird a seabird? It's not who your close um, evolutionary relatives are necessarily. Uh, a number of different lineages of birds have specialized to the marine environment. And the characteristics of these different lineages are uh, a heavy reliance on the ocean habitat. And you're really, really a seabird if you nest out on an island someplace. Um, you're not spending a lot of time on the coast. And you're out in the middle of the ocean. You're in an isolated speck of land to do your breeding. And you're foraging in probably the open ocean. Could be hundreds of kilometers away from where, where your nest is. That's your real seabird. And then there's kind of transitional seabirds like gulls that are mostly coastal and they often nest on, on the mainland or just a rock that's just offshore. And those are seabirds also, but sort of not card carrying seabirds like your albatrosses, your penguins, your boobies, frigate birds. Okay. These are names that your, your audience may know. Okay, great. So that's a really helpful distinction. So when it comes to those card-carrying um, seabirds, how many different species are there? Uh, hundreds, um, ballpark, uh, 200 maybe, something like that. Wow. And it seems like you've got to have some specialized skills to be able to navigate that kind of lifestyle, right? And and do they nest only during the breeding season and the rest of their time, they're just always open ocean? Or is it 
or, or is it where they they always have some connection to a landform, uh, whether it be a rock in the middle of the ocean or an island in the middle of nowhere, or, and and rely on on uh, the open ocean for food? Kind of what's the how does that break down in terms of their their life cycle? Many of them are on land only because they their eggs and their offspring don't float. That's the only reason that, that they're on land and their food is way over yonder. And uh, if their food is there and that's not where the island is, if they don't have to be at the island, they're just going to stay out where the food is. Some of these birds, especially the ones in the southern ocean, when they finish raising a, a particular offspring and it's going to be some time before they start another, they'll simply leave and go all the way around Antarctica, taking months to do so, in some cases, about a year and a half, foraging along the way, living rough out on the water, um, not returning to land the entire time. So really, you would think of those as seabirds in the sense that the sea is their habitat, and every once in a while, they're forced to go to land because their eggs don't float. Okay. I mean, that seems like a pretty difficult life, actually, um, <laughs> to to navigate. Uh, one of the species you've studied is the Nazca booby. And, and I assume it is a card-carrying member of the seabird uh, family. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people might have heard of the blue-footed booby. They get a lot of attention. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the Nazca booby, where they're found and... and um, you know, what made you choose to work on this particular group? Nazca boobies are one of the, um, I guess it's 11 species of boobies. You got your red-footed boobies, your brown, your Peruvian. There are some that are called gannets, but they're really boobies. Um, so they're in a group. Uh, they are card carrying. They live on islands, oceanic islands in the Eastern Pacific, like the Galapagos, which is where I study them. I first uh, got acquainted with them because I was um, a research assistant for a group that was studying Darwin's finches in the Galapagos Islands. And uh, the group was led by uh, Peter and Rosemary Grant, who are really well-known evolutionary biologists. And I was one of their field assistants. And for two years, I studied finches. But as I was walking from finch nest to finch nest to collect data, I was walking past these Nazca boobies. And I realized uh, pretty quickly that they will lay one or two eggs, depends, about half the time it's one, half the time it's two. And when they would hatch both of the eggs, only one of the offspring would survive more than a few days. And the one who didn't survive would just be sitting on the ground uh, the next day, dead beside the nest, as if the parent were ignoring them. And so I noticed this. And I was thinking about going to graduate school. And one of the things you consider when you go to graduate school is that you would like to have a project that is sure to produce something interesting. Right. <laughs> Maybe you don't care exactly what the result is. As long as you get some result, it's a more or less a sure <laughs> thing. You get some result. And I thought, this looks like a really good project. It sure is out in the middle of nowhere. It sure is going to take some effort to do a study of these birds. Uh, but it's definitely going to result in something because this is an unexpected reproductive characteristic to lose an offspring that couldn't have starved at such a small size. It hardly needs any food so regularly. Always this second hatching offspring dies when it's so young. So I thought, okay, figuring this out will certainly be something interesting and I'll get something conclusive out of that. So I finished working for the grants and I applied to graduate school and I told potential advisors, I already got this project and uh, here's the skeleton of it. And, and they thought it was a good idea too. So that's how I got started. This was back in 1984. Wow. Well, you know, it's funny, we have a, a little bit of a connection, not as direct, but Peter and Rosemary Grant came. So I was a grad student at Stony Brook and in the ecology and evolutionary biology department. And they came to talk uh, at our one of our special seminars where we would invite, you know, kind of really high profile um, researchers. And they were adorable. Uh, they finished each they presented together. Um, as a pair, as a unit, and they finished each other's sentences. And it was, 
it was, a, I can still see them right now, you know, standing up there in, in our little seminar room, going back and forth and looking at each other like, wait, oh yeah, let's tell them that. Um, and so it was, they, you know, what a great uh, privilege, at least as far as I'm concerned, that you had the opportunity to work with them and, and be part of, of, you know, such impactful work that they did. So it's no surprise that you've ended up uh, doing uh, much, much important work yourself. When we think about the Nesca booby and when they're on land, when they're nesting, what's a day in the life of this bird? Like, what do they do all day? What's like, how do they spend their time when they're on land? If you're a male, you're spending most of your time thinking about retaining your nest site. A male without a nest site is no good. And um, he's not interesting to females, and uh, he is not going to prosper reproductively. He's first and foremost thinking about, uh, am I being challenged for my site at this moment? Uh, is anybody sort of looking from the other side of the colony at my site? If I leave to go eat something for a while, is someone going to step onto my site and I'm going to have to deal with it when I get back? So if you're male, you're thinking about, beautifying your site by the arrangement of the pebbles that make up the nest and making sure nobody else comes by. And then if any female uh, takes a look at you, it's time to do the sky point display where you stick your bill straight up in the air and you give this funny whistle and you cock your wings in a, in a way. And that's telling a female, I am fully available and would love to have you come look at this nest site. Females have a different set of, um, apparently thoughts in their head. Um, <laughs> That's are, surprising. <laughs> they are the underrepresented sex. We have fewer females than males by, by a long shot. For every three males, there are only two females. So females are in demand. Males who care for their nest site and defend their nest site uh, with such energy are doing so because there's a ton of competition between males for females and the females seem to know this. So females are spending a fair amount of time evaluating males. We're not exactly sure what they're evaluating. We have some clues, but they're, they're checking out males. And early in the breeding season before eggs are laid, um, that's what females are doing. Um, they're dating males. Males are trying to get females to give them a date and doing what's required to hold on to their nest site so that maybe a female will come and have a date with them. Then the time will come when they, uh, where pairs have come together and a male and a female are going to start a family. And then the whole activity uh, pattern changes. And now they're much more doing the same thing. They share the incubation of the eggs equally. Uh, when one of them has gone to sea to eat, the other one is taking care of the eggs and then they switch after a, a few days. And then the eggs hatch and the same thing continues until they, until they finish. So they have different sex-specific behaviors until they actually start their family of the year. And then they sort of converge and become kind of the same. Okay. So, wow, this really brought up an interesting question for me because... I know that in general, we usually don't have such skewed sex ratios in the direction that you're seeing um, in this bird. So I'm curious, where do all the females go that you have so few females compared to males? When the nestlings hatch, there are equal numbers of sons and daughters at the population level. Five or six years later, when they have matured, and they have returned to the colony to begin their breeding career, that's when you see this excess of males. And the fallout for the females seems to be related to the fact that they are about 16% larger than males. And this, uh, this, this excess size appears during growth. They are larger bodied and so require more food. And if food is limiting, which it often is for seabirds, then daughters are less likely to have their nutritional needs met than sons. And they may survive, but they'll be in crappy condition uh, when they reach independence. And so they leave, they're gone um, out at sea. We don't see them for several years. Probably in that first month or so, when they're inexperienced, dough-headed teenagers not very good at doing anything, 
on their own for the first time, those uh, crappy females don't do well. Right. And they can't sustain themselves. And so they die and fail to show up as adults. Right. Well, and it's so it's interesting, right? Because I think most people don't realize how um, something that happens that early can actually shape the future dynamics of the entire sort of species or population in a given area. Um, It's fascinating. And other work that you've done that's really fascinating is on personality. And and although I'm fairly confident that most people listening certainly think, well, I've owned a pet. Of course, they have a personality. And they might think it's obvious that probably other animals have personality. Um, since you can't walk up to a Nazca booby and say, hey, what's your personality? And they can't fill out a multiple choice test like we do. How would you know, how do we get at this when we're, we're thinking about a species that's out there in the wild? Let, let's be sure that we have um, an understanding of what the term means to to an animal behavior person to us. <laughs> It's sort of an unfortunate choice of term because it it means to us um, some correlation between behavioral traits. So that, for example, some animal might be really not prone to explore, not interested in novel things, not very aggressive with uh, with other members of its species, kind of retiring. And this is observed in some animals when you do the right test to ask them, you know, what traits do they have in in those respects? And then on the other end, in the same species, you may have some animals that love to explore and have a short attention span and they get themselves into scrapes frequently, but they find themselves resources unexpectedly because of this. Um, They may be more prone to interact with others. They may get into more aggressive interactions. And so there's a spectrum that I've just described that an animal in a given population may fall anywhere along that spectrum. And this is commonly observed when you when you collect the right kind of data. And this is commonly observed in in whatever species. And that's called the bold shy continuum. And And it's a common outcome. It's not the only way that personality can vary. But what I've just described is if you tend not to explore very much, you probably are also not very interested in novelty. And you probably are a little reticent in in social interactions with others. And there are a few other traits. Those are correlated with one another. Well, if they are correlated with one another, then the animal is said to have personality. So it's not necessarily, are you agreeable or are you, uh, you know, uh, short-sighted or it's a correlation of a whole bunch of traits. So that's what personality means to an animal behavior person. Right. So it's like a composite look at different ways they might react to different situations. Um, And we expect that if you're this way in one situation, uh, in this axis of sort of response to a a situation that that we might expect you to also be this way. And if you are, then we've built sort of a profile of how you respond to other individuals and your environment. Right. And if you're like that, and personality is a characteristic of your species, others should be the same way. And then there are still others who are different in all respects. And there's a group of the others that are similar to each other, but different from you. If all that is true, then the animal is said to have personality. And if instead, uh, an animal who doesn't want to explore also is very curious and Others are um, don't want to explore, but are not very curious. If you get that, then you don't have a syndrome. You don't have a correlation among behavioral traits, and they're said not sure. to have personality. Well, and so as someone who has looked at personality in mouse lemurs, some of the tests that I did was response to novel food, response to novel object. Um, in the case of mouse lemurs, response to being handled by a human. Uh, and so I think what you guys looked at uh, were, were response to novel objects, uh, human intruder, right? So sort of how you respond. Was that proximity based? So like how you responded, depending on how close a person got? Yep. Yep. And all these tests were done on an incubating bird that wouldn't run away. They tolerate people being being close. And so we knew where the bird was and we knew that it would 
it wouldn't it would react to whatever our stimulus was for as long as we wanted it to re to react it wouldn't simply leave for example and so the human intruder test is to simply get close to the bird and stick your foot within pecking range and ask how it treated your foot yeah so that's what we did with the mouse lemurs is i mean it was in that case it was actual handling so there was no choice on the mouse lemurs part of whether or not to be handled uh because they were weighed regularly you know uh they had sort of during the mating season or mating period they would weigh them and and track their weight and and so a few times a year they were handled and, and this was not up to them but boy some respond they responded really differently um <laughs> and and so i imagine some shoes got pecked Yes, but sometimes not. <laughs> there, there was real variation. Uh, some of them erupted in uh, in pecks and uh, waving your wings around and yelling. They wouldn't leave their eggs because the eggs are so important, but they, they put on quite a show. Um, others at the other end of, of a spectrum would turn around <laughs> and face the other direction <laughs> just to avoid the entire situation <laughs> as as if if I can't see it then I don't need to worry about it <laughs> and and we had we had variation all the way along that continuum there was one particular guy i remember from back in the 80s um, that we actually called shoe man because every time we would get close to him to see whether his eggs had hatched he would go bananas over your boots and ignore the entire rest of you so while while it was going for your boots, you could just reach down and, and grab it because it had no interest in your hands or your arms. It was only caring about your boots. That's fascinating. I had a I worked on prairie dogs and uh, I had a very trap happy uh, prairie dog I called Easy because I I wouldn't even be finished setting the trap up and it and he was inside and just nibbling on his granola bar. And I finally, you know, had to just chuck some granola bars down the hole and say, here, please don't go in the trap. I don't need you. And so so that was one of the things I looked at with prairie dogs was how easily you could be trapped or how frequently or willingly or quickly, you know, and how you responded. Um, so so I love that you brought up Schumann because I was going to ask you, you know, when you're exploring this question, were there just any individuals that stood out in some way? And, and you kind of answered that, you know, do they change at all? Like, did you look longitudinally, longitudinally over time at, at how individuals might change in their personality or was it just fixed? You might have thought that um, that your behavioral traits, like the way you react to something scary or something new or someone else in your species, that it might be something that varies a fair amount during your lifespan. And it turns out it doesn't. Uh, one of the things that we were able to do that a lot of studies cannot do is encounter these individuals in the same situation, that is they're breeding and they have some eggs over the course of several years because the birds are easy to find because they pretty much nest in the exact same spot. And we know who they are because they've got a numbered metal ring as a permanent marker on their leg. And so we would go uh, across a number of years and give them these tests and ask how repeatable they are. And repeatability is a statistical term that you can express in a number, how similar something, something's traits are um, over repeated measurements. And they're pretty darn repeatable, these these uh, behavioral traits, these personality traits. And another thing that's repeatable is the way they respond to stress. Uh, uh, when we have a stressful event happen to us, we raise up a hormone called cortisol and the analog of that in birds is called corticosterone, same stuff. And when something bad is happening to you, your uh, adrenal glands, do what's required to bring this hormone up to a higher level for a short period of time, hours maybe. And this redirects resources in your body towards a flight or fight response and away from things like growth and doing other useful things because you're having a stressful event. Okay, so you do a stressful stimulus to a Nazca booby and you find out what its time course of this hormone is, and then you do it again some years later, and you find that individuals maintain their same way of doing the stress response. And we think that these things actually have something to do with one another, that the way you view the world 
hormonally with regard to stress is related to how proactive you are, how reticent you are, how you treat novel objects, how you respond to a human intruder. That this is, these are not two different things, that they're all part of, as you said, a coping style, a way of, of handling the challenges of your environment. Well, so I'm curious because do you think that this made me think, of, of course, I'm thinking in, in human terms right now, and, and that's what's driving this question. Do you think that there can be an, an event so stressful for, let's say, a bird that is proactive, is uh, more on the bold spectrum and has a lower, you know, corticosterone steroid response to stress and they're better able to kind of navigate stressful events can something happen to that bird in the course of its lifetime that changes that have you never found an individual that you you then tested later that that had a different stress response than when you first measured it yes we have found that and and repeatability, that number, uh, it ranges from zero to one. And it's not one at the population level. It's it's well less than one, which means that some variation exists and you can't absolutely predict how an animal is going to be in the future from the way it is now. You can kind of predict why that variation exists. We don't have any idea. But I'll reframe your question just a little bit. And go back to before they're adult, we do know about an event that can really shape the way both your stress response is and the way you're going to cope with the world. When they're nestlings, they are often the victims of something that is like human child abuse. They're large enough that they require enough food that both parents have to be gone for part of the day. And so they're unguarded in the colony. And this is a colony with a lot of other birds, like. 10,000 adults and then all their babies. Some of those adults are not breeding because they failed or the male didn't get a mate that year. And they want to interact with these unguarded nestlings. And so they run up to them when they see that they're unguarded and they visit with them. These are not their parents. We call them non-parental adult visitors or NAVs. These NAVs want to have a party with the nestlings. And why we're not really sure like what is going on with the neurons there, but they, <laughs> they want to be with the nestlings. They often want to beat them up. Sometimes they try to have sex with them. Often they stand with them as if they are their parent. And if they weren't banded with a unique number, you might mistake them for a parent, except that the nestling knows it's not the parent. And the nestling knows that this kind of nice behavior, this affiliative behavior, we call it, could turn in an instant into beating you up. So they're in a submissive posture. And so when you see this nestling in this kind of odd, scared behavior, then you look at the band on this so-called parent, and it's not the parent at all. They have this, uh, this intense social interest in these nestlings. Every nestling is a victim of this kind of behavior. And every adult at some point in its adult lifespan is a perpetrator of the behavior. So it's not unusual. It's a normal part of life. Now, the more you're a victim of these NAV visits, the more stressed out you are, kind of chronically stressed out if you're getting a lot of this kind of stuff. And it shows up later in life in the way you manifest your stress response. The way, you, the, the way you respond hormonally when a particular standard kind of stress appears, it varies a lot between individuals. After you're adult, it varies in a repeatable way. You know, if you have a low stress response as an adult now, you're probably going to have a low stress response in the future. But what happened to you when you were a nestling is a big predictor of what your stress response is going to be as an adult. I mean, I can't even I can't even begin to sort of express how powerful what you just said is when we also think about our own development um, and our own experiences, often in our case, at the hands of our parents, unlike for the Nazca boobies. And so I am kind of blown away. And it's interesting because 
I think I was thinking about, oh gosh, you know, I think that I don't cope with stress very well. And I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that's tied to <laughs> my, um, experience, <laughs> uh, growing up and developmentally. And I remember, uh, it, during a particularly stressful time, I was, uh, I had to go to a physician and I said, well, I mean, I think I cope with stress really well. And the doctor was like, you actually don't like, you really don't. <laughs> and, and that was the first realization like, oh, this isn't how other people cope. Right. And, and so, so it's, it's fascinating. And, and how are you, or are you trying to get a better understanding of what is going on with these adults that are not parents that w want to be in proximity and then may or may not behave innocuously towards an off, uh, uh, someone else's offspring when they're present with them? Um, how, are you trying yep. to get a handle on that? Yeah, um, and we know something pretty interesting about this. Adults who do this behavior, adults who become NAVs, are adults who are not breeding at that moment. And everyone is unemployed at some point during their adult lifespan. But some, every time they're unemployed, they're doing a lot of this behavior. And others, when they're unemployed, don't do very much of this behavior. And a predictor of how frequently you are a perpetrator is how much of this kind of victimhood did you experience when you were young? And we recognize this in human biology as the cycle of violence, that victims of childhood trauma, and the trauma I'm talking about now is uh, abuse by someone older, often are predisposed to do the same kind of behavior when they're adult. And so we talk about trying to break the cycle of violence by trying to help people not act on these predispositions. And that apparently is a challenging thing. One of the reasons it's challenging is that your stress response, the way you react to stressful situations has been, the scope of that has been limited by what happened to you when you were young. And you just have this natural tendency to respond to stress and the way you're experiencing cortisol uh, by lashing out at something vulnerable. And that's going to be a kid somewhere around you. So stopping that natural tendency from happening is difficult. So it is called the cycle of violence because it is a self-perpetuating thing. And it's the same thing in Nazca boobies. The more you were a victim of, of NAV behavior when you were young, the more likely it is you are going to perpetrate it yourself. So I, I hesitate to use a disease analogy because it's not a, an infectious disease, but there are some things in common with infectious disease that if you're a perpetrator as an adult, you can pass on this behavior to a number of victim offspring. It's not like there's just one that you go to, you could go to 10 or 20. That's an amplification kind of thing, probably much more of an amplifying process than happens in humans. The access to victims for humans is probably a lot less generally. So everything about this suggests that uh, this bird is a non-human model of the cycle of violence. It's the only one that's known for a wild animal. You can induce this kind of, it's called an organizational effect trauma experience when you're young organizes the way you behave when you're older. You can induce an organizational effect in a contrived experimental situation by, you know, depriving rhesus monkeys of their mother and giving them a towel wrapped around a, a you know, a tube of wire. And I, I don't know how useful that really is because it, it is so contrived and so unnatural. Um, when you get some kind of perturbation as an adult, well, a lot of things were weird for that monkey, not just sure. that its mom was there. But in a wild animal like this, uh, you feel like this is a natural part of their biology. Right. So who would have thought that basic science being done on the evolution of life history of some seabird in the Galapagos Islands would have provided us with the only <laughs> natural, non-human example of the cycle of violence? Yeah. I, I mean, and it's really powerful. And 
I, I wasn't aware of it. I had no idea that they experienced this in their life. And, you know, talking back, going back to what you were saying about the only example in the wild, they're the only, uh, you know, it's, and it's not just sort of, uh, induced trauma on purpose by humans, but also conditions like, so there's some research on macaques where they've, uh, they increase the density in, in a captive situation where there's so much social stress and um, tension that subordinate moms will occasionally end up being abusive to their offspring in response to the high level of social stress they're experiencing. And then those offspring go on to become also um, similarly abusive to their um, offspring. But again, that's a human contrived right experiment where they've increased the population density. Um, and so I wonder, and I'm, I'm totally, you know, committing that crime of anthropomorphism, but I'm wondering if the birds that are non-reproductive or unemployed, um, they're missing some kind of hormonal, um, you know, kind of level that makes them not harm um, things that are young and fluffy, <laughs> right? Because do other parents, so it's only the unemployed ones, right? It's only the ones that are not reproducing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So yeah. I wonder if there's a hormonal um, element to that. Well, we know little about that, except that when you grab one of these NAVs during a NAV event, their, uh, their corticosterone, their corticosterone is high-ish, uh, higher than for some other unemployed bird at the same moment who's not doing this nav behavior. Okay. So some evidence for what you, what you are saying. The, the picture seems to be that they all are predisposed to doing this, but if you're too busy because you're, you have an offspring that needs to be taken care of, you don't have time to do that. But it seems like once they're freed of, you know, their their work, their breeding work, then they act on this tendency. Seems like they're all kind of more or less ready to do it. Some of them more than others. But yeah. So I, maybe you're saying it's kind of suppressed hormonally by oxytocin or, yeah, something or prolactin. Like I know in birds, a lot of times prolactin is also kind of involved in parental behavior. Yes. Right. right. And yep. And we don't know about that, but it would be. It would be productive probably to inject some parent type hormones into some of these unemployed birds and see if you can suppress their tendency to do it. Right. Interesting. Uh, gosh, I, that was a uh, I was really curious about the stress response and personality and and coping. And I had no idea that you were really finding um, something that. I think we need to pay a little bit more attention to so that we might get some better understanding of the violence that a lot of parents are perpetrating on their offspring, um, not so much strangers. I think as humans, we sort of expect strangers to be pretty um, innocuous, but but there's a percentage that are not. Um, mm -hmm. And so before we um, so I look forward to finding out more about all of this uh, before we shift to talking about a different species, um, waved albatrosses in particular. You've also looked at how different factors, including environmental conditions, affect survivorship in um, the Nesca booby. And we talked a little bit about what might be happening for females and the nutritional stress. So I'm wondering, you know, we know that the climate is changing. In what way do you think that this is going to impact this species and maybe other seabirds as well? The oceans are warming. In the Eastern Pacific, where, um, where our populations live, it has warmed little compared to the rest of the world but is forecast in the next 100 years to go up about four and a half degrees Celsius. It's going to be probably, if not the fastest increasing part of the ocean up there with the leaders. So the ocean temperature is going to change dramatically. And the relevance of this for the birds is um, in at least two ways. One is that when water temperature is hot, a thing called El Nino happens in the Eastern Pacific. A lot of water gets evaporated up into the uh, atmosphere and then it comes down as rain. And so on their terrestrial nesting sites, they're likely to experience this heavy rain much more frequently. That can cause them some problems. That's not the big problem. The big problem is that their fish and squid prey 
uh, their biology is intimately connected to the temperature of the water they live in. And they have upper thermal limits that they can't exceed or they don't breed uh, a little bit higher than that. They can't live. Well, in uh, 1997, we got an idea of what it's going to be like in 100 years, not because the ocean temperature changed, but because their favorite fish, which is a sardine, um, disappeared. It's only just now uh, coming back um, and is not back, but at least we're starting to see it in the diet samples. So they spent about 25 years without this uh, fish in their diet. Well, the sardines are at about their thermal tolerance right now in Galapagos. If the temperature goes up 4.5 degrees, we forecast that no sardines will be within the foraging range of Galapagos birds. They're going to have to do without. And since 1997, those 25 years without sardines, we were able to measure things like adult survivorship, annual breeding success, population growth rate. and uh, the thumbnail of that is that they don't breed well when they don't have sardines. They survive great, be, mostly because they're not breeding and incurring the costs that go with reproduction, but they're not replacing themselves because their breeding is, is so crappy uh, and their population growth rate is negative. The absence of this fish causes a, a shrinking population if the fish are absent permanently, then you have a permanently shrinking population. So if everything that I just said turns out the way I said, then there aren't gonna be any Nazca boobies in probably 200 years in Galapagos. They will have simply lost their food supply that allows them to have a stable population. Yeah, um, and, and I suspect that would be true for many other species of seabird as well, not just just them, depending on the food source that they rely on. I mean, I understand the concept of a niche and, and what you're comfortable and where you can do your, you know, make your living. It's uh, 4.5 degrees Celsius. I mean, that's slightly more than the difference between current temperatures in the last ice age. Yeah, yeah. Right. so that's a, how extreme it is. People think it's a it's really a tiny number. <laughs> but no, it's a huge difference. It, it is a it is a huge difference. And and it's interesting because I'm wondering how long do these birds live? So have you do you have birds now that were were young when there were no sardines and you've tracked their whole life? Maybe they survived as adults because reproducing is super expensive metabolically and physiologically. Maybe those are the same thing. Um, and, and, and that are now still alive when sardines are coming back. Yes. Uh, there, there are plenty of birds like that. And we, ha we have only just begun to explore what the lifetime consequences are of being born. We call it the sardine phase before 1997 and the flying fish phase after 1997 because they're mostly eating flying fish when the sardines disappeared. Um, we've only just begun to explore what the lifetime consequences are because the birds live to about 28 years and we're at about 25 years now without, um, without sardines. So it's getting to be about the time that we have a complete lifespan of a whole bunch of birds from both the sardine phase and the flying fish phase to ask, have they organized their lives differently? as a response to a poor diet when they were young, poor breeding success when they're adults. So I can't say very much about that, except to say that uh, you live a longer life if you never breed successfully. Oh yes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Survivorship has been great during the, during the flying fish phase, but that's no way to, <laughs> to have a stable population if you're not also having babies. Absolutely. And they don't have a, a ton of babies all at once. And, um, and, and we, 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 we did miss, uh, hearing about why one dies, uh, every time. Can, can you tell us that quickly? Cause I know you're busy and I, I do want to get to some of your conservation work, um, on other seabirds just briefly, but I realized, oh, we didn't pull that thread. What's going on that yeah. they lose one. Uh that's the original question, and it took a long time to get a firm answer to. They will lay one or two eggs. Most pelagic seabirds lay one egg because their food is yonder, and it takes a long time to 
ferry food back to the nest. And so they just can't supply enough food for more than one offspring. But Nazca boobies, about half the time, will lay a second egg. And then the second one to hatch always dies. So what's up with this wasted egg? And what's up is that they are unusual in how bad they are at hatching eggs. Something causes infertility or early embryo death. Uh, I hang my head in shame that we actually don't know what that is yet, but something causes first eggs to be pretty unlikely to hatch. Well, they hatch about 60% of the time. Uh, a robin in your backyard is going to be more like 92, 95% of the time each egg hatches. And so this causes a need for insurance against the failure of the first egg. And if you lay a second egg, if the first one doesn't make it, the second one can fill the role. Um, if you happen to hatch both of them, that's a mistake. You need a way to solve that problem because you don't have enough food to feed two. And so how are you going to cancel this insurance policy? Hmm. Let's give the first hatching one a big competitive advantage so that it can beat up the second one. And we'll just hatch our eggs at a really long interval, about five days, which is as long as for any bird species, consecutive eggs hatching at such a long interval. And the little one has a great disadvantage against the big one. The big one hates the little one. It's totally amped up on um, fighting hormones, testosterone, for example, and it attacks it and pushes it out. And that's why back in uh, when I was supposed to be doing finch work and I was cheating and watching boobies, <laughs> I would find the little guy right there beside the parents. And the parents could have helped it back in, but the parents' interest is in canceling this insurance policy. And they're getting the the first offspring to, to do the work on it, but they're not helping um, the little one to get back in. So that second egg is an insurance policy motivated by the fact that they have this unusually low probability of getting the first egg to hatch. Wow, man, like I am now, my heart is going out to Nazca booby chicks, especially if you are the second sibling um, to hatch <laughs> if, or second offspring, sorry, to hatch. And you've got an older sibling that is going to basically be responsible for your demise. That's, that's a really, you know, I, I think people haven't realized how hard of a life it is to, to be out there, um, and be a, a pelagic seabird and all of the things that go with it. And, you know, the reason I found you is because I saw an article describing the work you and your colleagues are doing tracking albatrosses and the way that they their lifestyle is, how that impacts the kinds of policies, right, that we can generate from a conservation standpoint. And so since albatrosses spend so much time at sea, how does one... Because who owns the sea, right? And we could say if you land on this rock or this island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, it belongs to this country. They have, you know, the ability to make decisions about what happens there. But since these birds spend so much time in the open ocean, what do you think needs to happen um, to, to try to successfully protect them? Well, the, what they need protection from is uh, fishing fleets. They interact with fishing fleets on the high seas in waters that are not claimed by any nation. All the land, including islands, is claimed by some nation, and the islands have an economic exclusion zone, which they might enforce laws within. Um, many do. And so possibly <laughs> that country will um, have protection for seabirds within its economic exclusion zone. But the high seas are unprotected and full of fishing fleets. Uh, fishing fleets who throw guts overboard, who flow, throw you know, parts of their catch overboard as, as waste. And this is easy pickings for seabirds. Seabirds are attracted to these boats because their uh, foraging efficiency around the boat is so darn high. But unfortunately, there are hooks around the boats and nets around the boats. And often this causes more adult mortality 
then can be compensated for at the population level by the increased food delivery to the offspring. And so the net effect is a declining population, despite the fact that their food supply is getting enhanced so much. And what are you going to do about this on the high seas? Well, you can educate fishing fleets. We're talking about so many, many thousands of industrial type boats. You could try educating all these folks about the birdies and you know their population growth. And experience shows that um, mostly they don't care at all about any of that. Sure. It doesn't have anything to do with them making a living. And it seems that no matter how many birds die, there's still more birds the next day. So education is probably not a good way to do it. A bunch of us who had data on the movements of these seabirds at sea from GPS trackers, we all got together and we published a paper this year about what parts of the ocean are being used at the global level across all of the albatrosses and petrel species. And what we find is that much of their feeding activity is happening in these unregulated waters. probably in at least sometimes the presence of these industrial fishing fleets. So the, the bottom line of this paper is to make clear that um, much of the ocean surface is unprotected. This, these high seas are full of fishing fleets that have no incentive to try to protect these seabirds and the seabirds are experiencing a lot of mortality there. Well, and, you know, and not only that, but there's a, there's another sort of link, which is if you're a parent albatross or other seabird out foraging to bring food back to the nest and you die, you have effectively almost now killed everybody. That's right. And that happens with this species um, in Galapagos called the waved albatross. They're residents of Ecuador, but they uh, are workers in Peru. They fly from Galapagos, which is Ecuadorian, to the southeast, to the Peruvian upwelling off the coast of Peru. Highly productive, lots of food, long ways away. But if you can economically fly there and back, um, you can get a lot of food per hour. And so they do. Uh, males are bigger than females. Being around fishing boats is great, except there's competition and the males win because they're bigger. And so the females have to go someplace safe to forage. Uh, more males die around the fishing boats. That means you have a bunch of widowed females and their offspring, and it takes two parents to raise one offspring. So as you say, the family fails in that year for lack of one of the parents. The more you do this, the more you have females who can't even begin breeding because they can't find a male. It's the reverse situation of, of the Nazca boobies. It's the same in the sense that if you have a bias sex ratio, your population growth is going to go down because some families are never going to exist because a male and female never get together. And, and, you know, and I think for listeners, you know, it's one thing, I mean, you and I might say, you know, that, that we need to protect species for the species sake, right? Just because um, we want to support biodiversity, the, the more biodiverse our planet is, the more resilient it is to perturbations. And at least that's some hypotheses that are out there that more diverse ecosystems can handle stress better. But I think that pointing to the work that you have done on stress and the work that you've done on what happens to a young Nazca booby uh, and, and, and how much stress it experiences, particularly in the form of some mistreatment, or I think the paper called it maltreatment by other adults. Um, this ties to, this matters materially to how we understand our own families, our own um, responses to stress. And that wouldn't happen if this species didn't exist and there weren't people like you studying them. So I hope that that by listening to the work that you're doing, and I'm going to put links to some of the papers and 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 other information so people can find out more about this work. But I hope that people listening start to see, you know, because we're, we're often asked as scientists, why does this matter? Who cares? Who cares about boobies? Here's a shocking statistic. We reconstruct that a thousand years ago, before Polynesians spread throughout the Pacific, that the number of seabirds flying around, doing their seabird thing, eating 
the next food web level just below them was a million times more than it is now. A million times more seabirds were in the Pacific. And then the Polynesians brought pigs and rats that ate up seabird nests and Polynesians themselves ate up seabird adults. Um, most of the places that seabirds used to breed, they simply don't, they, they can't anymore. This is a lot like taking wolves and cougars and saber-toothed tigers out of, out of the North American ecosystem. So now one of the consequences is that we're overrun with white-tailed deer at five to 10 times the density that uh, the plant community is accustomed to being browsed. And we have Eastern forests that have no understory and have no recruitment of new white oak trees to replace the big adult, oak, big adult oak trees that are dying. So this is a big ecosystem effect from removing these predators. We've done the same thing in, uh, in the Pacific to this predator guild, we call it, um, of seabirds. And the entire ocean, which we really want to be healthy so that we have enough oxygen to breathe, the entire ocean's food web is being affected by the absence of these predators. Absolutely. And, and, and I got to say, I was fortunate enough to go uh, to uh, Dunedin, New Zealand and see royal albatrosses. They're magnificent. And that's not even seeing them fly and, and do their thing on the, on the high seas or over, you know, and, and, and even thinking about, I'm going to have to have you come back to talk about sort of the amazing way they navigate. All of these things are, are incredible. Um, but they're beautiful and they're, they're, they're magnificent, magnificent, even if they're not providing us a service, but they are providing us a service and they are imperative to the health of not just the ocean, but now also having a, 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 a way of, of making a, a deeper understanding of even our own um, stress response and our own family lives, which is really timely since this episode is out on Father's Day. Um, and dads are important in all of these species. And we, we have this narrative that dads are like this footnote and they're not important, but you know what? They're really important. And, uh, and so are you. So thank you so much for, for being on the show and talking about your work. It's really incredible and, and just grateful to have had the opportunity to talk with you. It was great talking to you. Hey everybody. Well, that was a lot. We covered so much on the Father's Day front. Just want to point out that what we learned about waved albatrosses echoes what we also learned about Nazca boobies. Dads matter. So for the waved albatross, if the males suffer mortality, the entire family dies. And that's true for all of these pelagic seabirds that need two parents to raise a chick successfully. The other thing that we learned is that our very human tendency to abuse our children physically, verbally, is really maladaptive. And by that, I mean, it doesn't serve a useful purpose, except as we're learning with the Nazca booby, creating an abnormal stress response that may potentially impact the way our children cope with stress later in life. I talk about this a lot in my book, Raised by Animals. So if you want to learn more about how our parenting can be informed by the kind of parenting we see in other species, uh, go ahead and pick up a copy. So in the case of the Nazca booby, it was non-parents that were doing the bullying. And this also relates to our current society. Many of our children are being relentlessly bullied. And we have opposing views on this. On one hand, some people say sticks and stones break, break bones, but words can never hurt you. This is patently untrue, scientifically untrue, empirically untrue. And what we're seeing in the research that Dr. Dave Anderson is doing is that when an individual during development is bullied, it modifies the stress response, which influences the way that the lens through which you view the world and respond to your environment 
and future stresses. So that's something to consider. The other thing that we touched on is related to a film I just saw. I recently saw the documentary Seaspiracy. And there was a lot that I knew, and there were other things that I didn't know. During my interview with Dr. Dave Anderson, when we were talking about the conservation work that him and his colleagues have been doing about pelagic seabirds like albatrosses, boobies, and petrels, the biggest threat to the livelihood and the survival of these species is commercial fishing. And that echoes what was revealed in the documentary Seaspiracy. I encourage everyone to go watch it. And what you'll find is that the singular best thing that you can do to protect marine life, these amazing seabirds, and ultimately the very air you breathe is to stop eating fish. That's the answer. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you. And if you're enjoying the show or finding it interesting, please subscribe and give it a review and share it with your friends so that others can find it too. You can find the show notes on my website, jenniferverdelin.com or on Wild Connection, the podcast hosted by Podbean. 